I'm Denise. She's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise. She's a fiction editor. And together, we're the Editing Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Editing Podcast. Yeah, hello. So this week we're talking about style. What style is, why it's important and how editors work to create, evaluate and enforce style. So what do we mean when we mention style? Well, style is a combination of decisions or choices that respect conventions in spelling, punctuation and grammar, while allowing for purposeful deviation based on flow, mood, register and tone. For example, there might be a decision to allow non-standard past participles in dialogue. For example, I seen, I should have went or the car needs washed. Exactly. So now let's have a quick look at the difference between rules and preferences and how these relate to style, because they're not the same thing. No. There are far more preferences than rules in language, despite there being an overuse of the word rule in some editing quarters. <laughs> <laughs> Too many. Yep. So there are rules when it comes to, say, how apostrophes work or how a word is pluralised or what a serial comma is. <gasps> you had to mention it, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but there's no rule about whether a serial comma should actually be used that can be applied universally, yep. nor whether a writer should use single or double quotation marks in their writing. What we have is a set of preferences and what we might also call conventions if they become formalised broadly in the publishing industry. You know what? I think that actually really makes sense to, to, to distinguish between a preference and a convention, actually, because, for example, while there's no rule that the first line in the chapter of a novel wouldn't be indented, it's become so conventional that it might as well be a rule. Yeah, I mean, not yeah. always, but nearly always. Nearly <laughs> always, yeah. And if an author were to elect not to format their novel according to that convention, their work might generally be perceived as looking a bit unprofessional or a bit amateurish. Yeah. And yet there are times when there are absolutely just preferences. Yeah. That's all they are. That's all they are. So an example would be the choice of whether to write with British or American spelling. There's yeah. no convention in play there. It's just a preference. So what we have are rules, then style conventions and style preferences. Yeah. Those are three key distinctions and there's a time and a place for each. And even the rigidity with which style conventions and preferences are enforced, that varies too, doesn't it? Yeah. So the first arena in which there's going to be a distinction um, is between fiction and non-fiction. And my sense is that fiction's a lot more flexible on the whole than non-fiction and academic work in particular. So as far as I know, there is no fiction style guide. I use a combination of two much more generalist style guides when I'm editing, the Chicago Manual of Style and Newhart's Rules. Right, and they're absolutely not fiction manuals. No. They're general guides that I use in particular circumstances too. So do you just ignore the stuff you don't need and cherry pick the stuff you do? That's pretty much the approach. <laughs> it's not terribly technical. <laughs> I think instead that there is a whole slew of guidance around style, literary style, that's that's there but not included in the mainstream style guides like CMOS or Hearts. But it is recognised. You just have to dig around for it. So I'll give you a little example, if I may, Denise. Do go ahead, Louise. There's this <laughs> thing called anaphora, which in fiction is when the author deliberately repeats a word or group of words as an experiment in rhythm. And yet there's no reference to it in CMOS in that context. I mean, there is broad guidance on a light editorial hand and respecting authorial style, but there's no specific reference to anaphora as a thing and why it shouldn't be questioned when it's being used to create mood and rhythm. 
Mm, now that's interesting because even then there's a kind of an assumption that the editor should decide whether to leave it alone oh. or edit it out. Yeah. Whereas what you're saying is the question should be instead, that's an Afra, but does it work? And if not, how can I help the author make it work? Exactly. And so it's really important that when non-fiction editors decide to switch to stylistic fiction line editing, they do their due diligence. It's not enough to say, oh, I'll let that go because it's author style. They should understand that an Afra is an element of style. It's a thing. Because deciding to leave something alone is a neutral approach, but one that still starts from an idea that something's a deviation. Mm. Whereas deciding to embrace something and make it work because you know what it is, that's a positive approach that sees it as a device. Yeah, exactly. So basically, there's very little guidance on fiction available in what we'd call a style guide. But where there are style guides, it's amazing how often they're talked about as if they are rule books. Yes, that's so true. So you do still hear editors saying things like, what's APA's rule on this? What's Chicago's rule on that? And yet it's the APA style manual and the Chicago manual of style. <laughs> yes, they're called style guides for a reason, yeah. because they're guidelines based on how that society, in the case of the American Psychological Association, and how that university press, in the case of CMOS, prefer to see text handled. Yeah. And why Newhart's rules, which is also a style guide, messes up the whole argument. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. it's yet another example of the nick and not the <laughs> publishing world gets itself into by muddying the waters when it claims its intention is to do the opposite. Oh, God, you couldn't make it up, could you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in nonfiction, it really does depend on what's been published and where. For academic work, as we said earlier, there might be very little flexibility there's a style and the writer must adhere to it. So maybe that's a style developed by the American Psychological Association or The Economist or the World Health Organization or any one of the numerous style guides available. Yeah, and the people who are submitting written work to those organizations publications are expected to adhere to those style choices as if they were rules. Mm. Whereas I've heard you talk before about having a much more flexible approach with your independent business author clients. Oh, definitely. Yeah, then I'm much more likely to be like you, mm. cherry picking what works from the available published style guide that I think is most appropriate and then aiming for consistency. And, and in that case, I'm very much focused on the target readership and the degree to which the decisions I'm making are going to impact positively on that. That makes sense. So if you're editing a book um, aimed at a small business owners like us, you'd not be insisting that in-text citations be styled according to Harvard's preferences because doing that would be interruptive. Yeah, that's exactly it. So one of the questions that comes up a lot from editors in training is the difference between a style guide and a style sheet. Yeah, so in a nutshell, a style guide is an overarching reference tool that allows editors to make technical decisions, whereas a style sheet is just as valuable but has a very different function. It's a record of those stylistic decisions, nothing more. Yeah, so examples of style guides include the World Health Organization, American Legal, EU, CMOS, APA, AMA, Blue Book, Oscola, The Guardian, The Economist, BuzzFeed, Microsoft, all these all, things. Yeah, and also the Apple Style Guide, MailChimp and Google. And here's a really useful one. Um, in these turbulent times when identity politics has never been more vibrant, 
the Conscious Style Guide. Yeah, now that's an online guide that's aimed at those who want guidance on compassionate, mindful, empowering, respectful and inclusive language. It's not all in one manual and it probably never will be because the communities it represents don't necessarily speak with a single narrative. Yeah. Now, the degree to which these various style guides are used varies according to subject specialism in the editing world. And there's not and there's there's one we didn't mention, actually, but that we should. And that's house style. Ah, yes. Yes. (laughs) So house style is specific to a single organization and it might be based on an existing style guide like, say, The Economist, but then have a list of exceptions and alternative preferences. So what might that include? Well, it might start by specifying a preferred dictionary that the editor is required to work with. And it could include formatting guidance. So things like the use of fonts, bold, italic, colour, spacing and so on for heading levels, rubrics, answers, call out boxes and the like. Yeah, yeah. So I work on a lot of education textbooks and the style might specify a particular colour for the headings and boxes for each separate unit and a different font for word pools or grammar points or pronunciation tips captions and even for the position of icons for audio and video clips and so on god that takes proofreading to a whole different level oh yes (laughs) (laughs) but it makes sure the series is coherent and readers know what to expect and that makes absolute sense definitely so another part of the style equation is tone and register and this harks back to readership Definitely, yeah. So where is the material going to be published? On a blog? In a textbook? In a peer-reviewed academic journal? Is it a novel? And who's going to be reading it? Is it people whose first language is English? People who have specialist knowledge? Or the general public? All of that is going to determine the tone and the register of the writing style and how formal or informal it is. And that in turn determines the degree to which the editor can justify making changes because maybe the writing does sound formal and pompous and maybe the text is frequently interrupted by dull citations, but that's the given publisher style. And it has to be that way or it won't get published. It will not, yeah. And then there's voice. And voice is a bit like a fingerprint in a way. Mm. It's, it's what makes an author's writing unique to them. So the style of author voice, when it's allowed to shine, will vary and some writers may have a particular way of phrasing things or of using sentence structure or vocabulary that clearly marks it as their writing. Yeah so overall the feel could be one of a fun quirky depressed or serious writer. We've all read writing that's beautiful but that makes us feel drained or sad or a quirky author who delights us with their unusual turn of phrase and use of language. You can often hear the author as you're reading, can't you? Yeah, that's so true. The personality absolutely pops off the page because even something as small as the punctuation that the author's used. And so the editor's job there is to ensure that every change is done in the spirit of that voice. And in that sense, our job is to revise in a way that mimics. You know, the other day I was doing a a webinar for the um, Society of Authors and some one of the um, delegates asked me um, how do you make sure that you don't edit it to to make it sound like you and that's mm-hmm. exactly what I told him I said like that's not my job my yeah. job is to be the mimic a comedian yeah so yeah we can maybe justify amending the spelling and punctuation so that it's consistent with a preference for U.S. English but maybe we recast another sentence in a way that's cleaner but still sounds like the author wrote it 
Absolutely. And that's where the skill of stylistic editing comes into play, because if you get that wrong, you can butcher a book. Yeah. 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 And sympathetic editing really must improve the text, but never at the expense of the voice style. It should still read as if the author themselves were reading it to you. Definitely. Poor editing can strip the vitality from a piece of writing, even deaden it completely. And when that's because of nothing more than an injudicious Injudicious? Injudicious. 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 That sounds like a bit of a tongue twister, doesn't it? It is, clearly. For me, anyway. <laughs> Injudicious. Injudicious. Do you want to change it to an easier word? <laughs> no, I'm going to go with it. Go with it. <laughs> go for it. And when that's because, what I was trying to say was, when that's because of nothing more than an injudicious replacement of words and phrases, because of an editor's prescriptivism, peeves or pedantry, that's not good practice. It's not respecting style. It's not respecting the client either. No, it just makes it sound like anyone could have written it. And I think that's something that a lot of our clients fear happening mm, when they have mm, their work edited. Yeah. 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 And worse, it sounds like the editor's written it. And I tell you when that's even worse, it's when the editor's not a great writer. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> so it's, it's dead on both counts. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just because someone's a good editor doesn't mean they're a good writer. Two very, very different things. Two, right. Yeah, yeah. So the other type of voice style we need to look at is in organisations. And this is where a style guide will be essential and why the likes of Apple or Coke or Microsoft will insist that whoever's writing and editing for them uses their style guide. And here, what they absolutely don't want is the individual author's voice mm -hmm. coming through. Yes, yeah, the opposite, isn't it? <laughs> it's the exact opposite. So the aim overall is consistency across all their materials. It's brand voice. Yeah. And in addition to all the specifics around design styling, so brand colours, fonts, logos and so on, that brand voice will be key to style. So certain words might need to be avoided and there'll be guidelines about whether the language is gender neutral, whether passive or active voice is used, whether it's first, second or third person, um, whether contractions are allowed, whether the text will be spelled and punctuated according to which English is being worked in. And it might be whether the tone is informational or entertaining or serious. Yeah. And there are also micro issues of style consistency that come into play too, like hyphenation or capitalization or the use of the serial comma. Don't mention serial Don't mention the serial comma. Shh, shh, shh. <laughs> moving on, moving on. <laughs> nothing here, nothing to see. <laughs> so basically, when editors talk about style, they might be talking about different things, either the tone of voice of the writing or how that writing is physically formatted or how those choices are dictated or how those choices are recorded. And we hope it's clear that there's no one style and no one way of recording those style choices. Honestly, there are as many styles as there are fish in the sea. There are. There are. And writers from different disciplines have different requirements, and the way that editors implement those style choices and record them will therefore differ too. Exactly. So that's a good way to wrap up. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can rate, review and subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whichever platform you prefer. Yes, thank you so much for listening to the Editing Podcast. She's been Louise. She's been Denise. Join us again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.